out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. And this week, it's going to be the turn of the Bardos. Because I recently, very recently, spoke to their vocalist, songwriter, guitarist and keyboard player Simon Dunford to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Their two albums, which were iBaby and V-Neck, are now available on Bandcamp and also digital download and on various streaming services. That's uh, iBaby and V-Neck, I probably just said that. And also you can find them if you in a nice and groovy way on Facebook and also Instagram. Yes, they're filling the social media platform sites with their music, love and aura. Anyway, look, this is the interview with Simon. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Simon, tell us your early musical awakening in life. Over to you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a similar vintage to you, David. I, I was born in 66. Um, and so, yeah, my my early memories of music was probably similar to yours. So it was like shawaddy waddy and mud um, and the Bay City Rollers. Um, really loved the Bay City Rollers um, when I was a kid. So, yeah, that glam rock definitely was an early sort of, uh, I'm not sure I'd call it an awakening, but uh, it definitely made me start thinking about music and enjoying music, um, seeing those people on top of the pops. Um, But then I suppose, yeah, and then that, and Bowie, yeah, absolutely, totally remember Bowie on top of the pops and uh, T-Rex as being kind of really wow moments. Um, but then I think soon after that was punk. So mm-hmm. like I was I, I was slightly too young to really appreciate it. I think, but I remember the shock in the in society that punk caused, um, and that was really fascinating. I didn't really like the music um, at that point, but I suppose I was like I don't know, eleven, twelve years old or something. Yeah. But it's certainly I, I yeah I went to a a really rough school in the north of England and uh, punk kind of took over the entire school and the, and the, uh, and the discos that had been all about dancing to sweet and um, mud uh, suddenly turned completely violent and people would turn up to the school discos with like razor blades literally and start uh, slashing each other and everyone started sniffing glue. So so punk seemed just just unbelievable to me. Yes. Um, and, yeah, and then from punk, I suppose, um, New Wave, I was then old enough to really appreciate kind of post-punk stuff. So I, I think the bands that, I, that really made me, I guess, want to be a, a, a songwriter and a musician was bands like um, The Stranglers, um, XTC, um, those kind of bands and I went to see the, the my first gig was the Boomtown Rats at Middlesbrough Town Hall um they were never a cool band even even then but it was still it was still a really great gig actually yes um, absolutely yes. yeah so and I think my so those are my first kind of memories yeah yeah and were your parents at all musically minded did they sort of influence you at all um well my yeah I suppose a bit in that my mother was um, a music teacher 
um, she taught piano. Um, so I, I learned piano and also cello and also percussion as a kid. Um, I, not, not kind of for the whole of my childhood. So I stopped when I was about 13, 14. Right. Um, but I think that, that I suppose, yeah, that, that musical grounding did help me later. Um, and I, I kind of resurrected the piano and that's how I first started writing was on the piano uh, when yes. I was maybe about like 15, 16, 17s. And what um, sort of records? So yeah, they weren't, they weren't huge record collectors or huge fans of music really, but they were, um, my mum certainly was musical, yeah. Yes, I was going to say, did, did were there any particular soundtracks or records in the house that you heard to begin with that you, um, yes, was ensconced in your DNA? Um, I don't think so really from my parents. I mean, maybe... Yeah, it tend to be kind of kind of soundtracks um, to musicals and kind of um, yeah, some kind of some cool sort of soundtracks I would listen to. But I think my my I had an older sister who um, who who got into some terrible heavy rock music, um, which I listened to and just dismissed. Really hated that. But then I had a girlfriend when I was about 17 who who had an older brother who had just exquisite uh, taste. And so I just devoured his record collection when I was around at her house. Um, and so that's how I discovered, um, I don't know, all sorts of amazing bands like, and, and like, you know, The Doors and Velvet Underground and The Clash and, um, yeah, Patti Smith. And he just he just had a, like an encyclopedia of, of um, great music. So mm. I think he, yeah, he was probably the biggest influence on me, actually. Thank you, Alan Hogarth. Good old Alan. Yeah, because I had a brother who was seven years older than me and during his formative time when I was very young, he was into prog rock, you know, Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest, the solo yeah. worker Rick Wakeman. And so I would sneak into his room and play these records with great curiosity and became obsessed with them for a bizarre, you know, five years, I think. Yeah. So, um yeah, and then I grew up, got older, and thought, my God, he could have been giving me all these great records from. You know, <laughs> yeah. but, but he was, he was that that kind of you know sixth form kid who just wanted to be a serious student and um, yes, get yeah. into finance and accountancy and prog rock. It was such a cliche, really, but <laughs> it did happen. Well, if you're into if you're into musicianship, I mean, the musicianship of those kind of bands was amazing, really. Um, I just it just didn't I don't know things either appeal to you or they don't you know that just never never kind of appealed to me but I could appreciate the um, the excellent musicianship. But it was interesting because you mentioned heavy metal. He did have um, Deep Purple, I think it was Burn, and also Black Sabbath albums. And I was again, you know, I would go and put these on, you know, and and be absolutely like, wow, that's incredible, you know. Yeah. Because well, those, was... and those bands, sorry, those bands did also influence. Uh, later really cool bands like Nirvana didn't they and then so so they did yeah they probably down the line somehow did have an effect on me yeah yes this is true so when you got to 16 which was probably 1982 did you leave school at that stage or did you go on to university and was it Middlesbrough that you was your hometown yeah well Stockton on Tees just next to Middlesbrough was my hometown um and then yeah I did I uh, after school I did A-levels um and then after a levels i went to to university at uea in norwich so and that's how i met the people um that i 
you know, I played in various bands at UEA, um, and that's where my kind of performing, I suppose, and proper writing started. Yes. Uh, and and yeah, we and our and so the Bardos um, was formed from UEA students at, who had just finished, who you know, after we'd graduated. So did you come to UEA? Was it eighty four or eighty five? Eighty-five, yeah. Right. So, so indie pop. This is my. So, indie. You know, we had that punk period, then the post-punk world of those interesting and scratchy bands, which we loved so much. But then indie pop came along with eighty-three, which is the years of the Smiths, which were a huge, huge chapter in life. So, from eighty-three to eighty-five. 87 uh the smiths appeared and suddenly this kind of scene really developed were, you, were the smiths the man that sort of came on your radar at all oh yeah 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 absolutely the smiths i i just couldn't believe what i was hearing when i first heard the smiths i was absolutely bowled over um i can i can still picture the day that i was that i went to buy their first i think it must have been the first album or maybe in a single Going back on the bus from the town centre to, to my house with this, with this, even the sleeve was incredible. But no, I was absolutely amazed by that they completely changed music. That's when I was, that's when I was at Sixth Form College, uh, and then they luckily for me they played Middlesbrough Town Hall twice, and I went to both gigs. Um, and they were especially the first gig, which was probably their first UK tour. I think they were just unbelievable. Um, the second, the second gig, they weren't so good, and they were supported by James, um, whose manager subsequently went on to manage a band I was in after Bardo. It's called Polak. Uh, Martine was their manager. She ended up being our manager. Right. And James, James were amazing, 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 and and blew the Smiths almost off the stage that night at Middlesbrough Town Hall. So when you saw them, probably in '84, was that when the Red Guitars were supporting them? Yes. Yes. Did you see them on that tour? No, but they they played at UEA on on uh, Valent the fourteenth of Feb, didn't they on Valentine's Day? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they were playing. Yeah, no, the Red Guitars were good. Like they were really interesting. Yeah, they were. But um, yeah, the Smiths incredible. Yes, there you go. So did that mean you did you sort of discover the world of indie clubs in Middlesbrough or in your neighbourhood? Because I know there's a really good indie band called the Nivens from Northumberland who did a couple of really good singles and flexi-discs and then they broke up. But I just remember doing an interview with their singer, Peter Martin, and it sounded like there was, like with a lot of those scenes in the 80s, there was a, every town had an indie night, didn't they? I think I think I missed, I think that passed me by, actually. I think I was maybe just slightly too young for that. I, there, were, there were some bands that, and I even maybe, I think I played in a few gigs with some of them, who would play in these kind of not brilliant venues around Stockton and Middlesbrough. So I suppose I, I was a bit on the fringes a bit, but I, I was aware of it. Um, but I, that wasn't, no, I wasn't really, I wasn't really immersed in that. But when I got to Norwich, um, I mean, I chose, I did choose UEA almost entirely because um, Don Peel was playing the Higsons and the Farmers Boys a lot. And talking about the Norwich scene, um, you know, he would really go on about it. And, you know, Peel, for just about everyone, was massive influence, wasn't he? And um, and so I thought, wow, that sounds good. So I really, <laughs> I genuinely chose, chose it. And in fact, other friends just said the same thing. Yes. Um, and, and so when I got here, they, I mean, they, they were sort of 
in a way they were just tailing off. Um, I did see them a, a little bit, but they were kind of ending really. But the scenes were still around, and, and it was there were some really good bands and really good venues. So it was like it was the Jacquard and the Cellar of the Lawyer uh, and the Cellar of the Louis Marchese and the Gala Ballroom um, and some of those venues that you know no longer exist. But there was a lot of places to play. Um, so yeah, and loads of good UEA bands. Um, so it felt like a, it still felt like a scene that was pre Barry and the Wild Club at the Art Centre. Um, yes. But the Art Centre had a good scene then, you know, there was, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a regular club at the Art Centre that was really cool. And they showed sort of Super 8 films um, while the bands were playing and it felt really good. Um, and then that finished and then Barry came along, Barry Newman, and did brilliant, brilliant things starting up that club. Um, and, and that was really important for the Bardos, you know, having a, having a kind of home where we could we could do our early gigs and also put out our early records. Yes, absolutely. So then as you were doing your degree, which is probably between was it 85 to 89, you've you 80, finished? 85 to 88. 88. So when did you decide you wanted to be, I mean, to take it from being a fan to then, yeah, thinking, right, let's take this more seriously and, and sort of find a guitarist, a drummer, a bass player? Possibly keyboard player. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had decided even before university that, that I, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I probably from about 16 or something, I, w I was I was pretty, I mean, you're kind of slightly idiotic, aren't you, at that age, and, and arrogant and everything seems possible. And I just thought, I'd finished thinking I would be a professional footballer and then I decided I would be a professional musician um and so and then I just carried that on to university so the first thing I did at university was do exactly as you're saying find the drummer guitarist bass player um and then just start furiously rehearsing and and doing lots of you know different bands and different lineups and different types of music and um so it was always I mean the degree was good and important to me too but the, it was always about the music being at university to me was just um, purely about getting in good bands and getting part of a scene and getting gigs and starting a career. Yes, had the barn, there was a thing called the barn, wasn't there, at the UEA? That was a yeah. bit, had that stopped by the time you got there, the barn? No, that was in full swing. That was it. That was a really good venue. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, it was by the, down by the river in what is now university accommodation. Um, this old, this old barn full of character, but just, just the scene of, of, drunken parties and gigs just about every night of the week um and i did some pro i did i promoted some gigs as well we and and club nights and stuff um so yeah we had an amazing time that was a good venue yeah yeah i could imagine but then you know 87 massive you hit the smiths break up my god and um drastic stuff and there was a like you know with a lot of bands i've interviewed there is a bit of a five-year narrative you know, you have the first 12 months, it's a honeymoon period, getting it together. Then you get that first single and first, yeah, release. And, you know, in in those days, you know, the John Peel play was like, wow, the John Peel session. Then you get that kind of first album. But but then, you know, there's a tricky second album. But then the other thing that I noticed with a lot of bands is that kind of musical scene changes. And there's another wave of, I suppose, 16, 18 year olds who are turning up and they want to discover their new band. So 80... 87, 88, 
Yeah. I'll just make sure I got the right decades right. You know, it was a bit of a tricky one, wasn't it? Because a lot of those bands who'd had that moment, like, had, had done really well, that suddenly having, um, yeah, things were changing there. And there was this sort of, I know it's a bit simplistic, but you had the ecstasy world, then there was this kind of dance culture started. And then, you know, there was the Chicago house scene and a guy called Gerald and the Orbital coming through and bands like that. So how did you kind of try and navigate that as a, you know, thinking what's going to be relevant? How are we going to surf the zeitgeist? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I mean, we when we first started, so I suppose about 88, 89, we were really interested in kind of jangly, jangly kind of pop um, based on kind of the birds and bands like the Smithereens um, in America uh, and and kind of very, very early REM. Um, we, that's what we felt was cool. Um, and, and so we we did that to start with in sort of live and also um, a bit on our early releases in the Wild Club. And did bands and then, like did bands like the replacements or Green on Red? Did they come into your consciousness? Yes, yes. yeah, both of them. Yeah, and in fact, Green on Red recorded in the same Norfolk studio, bizarrely, as as we were recording. There was a studio out out it. Um, oh, where is it? It's I can't remember the name of the village in in North Norfolk, sort of near Horsted. But oh. there was a, a recording studio run by Howard Turner. Um, who's uh, who's still around, uh, and he and he was in a band called the Nivens, who were very a great jangly eighties jangly kind of band. Uh, yeah, and Green and Red came over and recorded in that same studio that we were recording in. They, they were a nightmare, apparently. But yeah, no, we we liked bands like that. And then to, to go back to your question, I think uh, there was definitely a moment where things were getting dancey, and Manchester was happening, and then Blur came along with their early singles that were all kind of dancey and we thought oh right we need to be a bit more dancey so we we did we did attempt that a bit but it never really it was never really us um you know really wasn't us we're we're very very white english people um and it wasn't going to work so we we just went back to what we wanted to do really and just made the music that felt right for us and then and then bands like the pixies came along um uh, pixies were you know, enormous influence on us um so you know shoegazing scene kind of came and went um and then we uh, our best kind of period was just after shoegazing when the music press was sick of shoegazing and had discovered um suede um and we that was when our first singles were coming out on Cherie, so our first proper singles um, and the editor of Melody Maker felt that we um, had a lot in common with bands like Suede uh, and decided, <laughs> he decided that there was a new scene and he was going to, I think he, I think he, this is some um, Steve Sutherland, I think he called it New Glam or something because he, you know, and, and, and we, he felt that our my singing, our lyrics, our kind of music fitted into that, and he was trying to create a scene. Um, and we went down to London, and he, I mean, this is one of the the kind of high points and low points of my life. We went down to London. The editor of Melody Maker, you know, in those days, Melody Maker, as you know, 
was just a kind of, along with the NME, was just incredibly influential and important to a musician. And the editor took us, brought us down to London, uh, interviewed us, and he said, um, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your first single, single of the week, your second single, single of the week. I'm going to do you a, a, a short interview. Then I'm going to do a double page spread. Then I'm going to do a lead live review. Then I'm going to put you on the front page and you're going to be famous. Um, that's literally what, I can, what he said. And um, and so we thought, wow, this is really easy. And then we put out our first single and it was single of the week. And then we did the second one and they did the interview and then double page spread. And that, and it was all like incredible. And then it got to the leader art live review. And I'm not sure if it was him or one of the other reporters, but they came to review us live. And um, whoever it was really didn't like it. I don't think I don't think we had a particularly good gig anyway. But it, but we were never going to be swayed, and I was never going to be Branson. Um, <laughs> or Verve was the other one. It was us, Swade and Verve. You know, I was never going to be Richard Ashcroft. With a feather boa, do you know what I mean? So, so the, they wrote a very negatively live review, and then that was it. Belgium Maker decided that the Bardos are no more, no longer part of their kind of new glam plan, uh, and it was kind of curtains. Yes, it was good. Sorry, but then you mentioned shoegazing because that late eighties period, there was bands like um, My Bloody Valentine were coming through, and then there was Silverfish and the Faith Healers and early moments of Carter as well. So there was that kind of scene. So did you feel tempted with your heavy feedback and um, mopey attitudes? Well, we definitely liked we definitely liked some of that, especially My Bloody Valentine. And we were definitely influenced by bands like that. Um, and that did feed into the music for sure. But we just, I think we just wanted to be more, we did, even though we, were, we weren't at the level of, of Brett Anderson, we did want to be exhibitionist. Um, and arrogant and, um, you know, visual, try and do something visually interesting. You know, we were, we were really influenced by the Velvet Underground and Warhol and, uh, you know, that exploding plastic inevitable tour that they did um, across America. And, I, you know, we, I devoured any books about that stuff. And so when our, our early gigs, we were trying, we were using slides and films and I was doing all sorts of pretentious theatrical sort of things in my own way um, to try and make it interesting. We did, we did really want the audience to go and have a, an experience rather than just watch a band shuffle on in the clothes that they'd rocked up in, you know. So so we were never, we were never, we didn't want to be part of the shoegazing kind of scene. We wanted to be a bit uh, kind of better than that. A bit more arty. So your first single was on the Flexi Disc, wasn't it? Baz McHat Records, which is part of the Wild Club. Yeah, yeah. This is, so that it, was that was Barry's first release, I think. Right. And where did you record it? Um, that would have been at the studio I mentioned, where <laughs> Green on Red and other bands would record um, out in Norfolk. Yeah. And in the end, funnily enough, <laughs> a certain another bizarre twist. Uh, in our career was our manager ended up buying that studio um, for us to record and rehearse and sometimes live in. Um, so that that building, I don't, I don't think it's a studio anymore. It's um, yeah, that's that was had a really important part in in our career and in my life actually. 
My goodness, it should have a blue plaque. It was a bit like Rockford, <laughs> I guess. It was it was a kind yeah, of a yeah. residential studio, wasn't it? So well, um, yeah, it was a bit like yeah. It, I think it was like that. It was in the middle of it was on like in a rural in the middle of load of fields that's completely deserted and um, uh, old farm buildings and then an old farmhouse that had been turned into a nice studio with bedrooms and stuff upstairs. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, an amazing place for parties. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel, I mean, at the time, it's probably different, but now you realise how how kind of easy it seemed, but actually how lucky you were as well? Because I think most people who I've interviewed sort of got the band together they did this you know you know like I mentioned you know the the gateways we had you know like you said the melody maker but there was also sounds DNME record mirror you know huge circulations every little town and city in the UK had a alternative venue so you could just get your transit van go around the country John Peel's session with Dale Griffith and you know suddenly it's like oh this is so easy you know what's what's the problem and then decades later people try and get back to doing some music thinking you know, you stick it on band camp and you think, gosh, this is really hard work. How did we ever manage to make it so easy when we were young? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, we at the time, we just thought that's, I, mean, I suppose we did We did feel we were lucky. Yeah, we, I mean, we felt very lucky that John Peel liked our early, so even that first Flexi disc you mentioned, and John Peel played that, and then he played the next one and the next one, and he played them a lot. And then we did a Peel session and, and all of those things were things we, we had dreamt, really dreamt of, you know. Um, so that did feel lucky. We also felt like we deserved it because we worked hard and we, you know, we were arrogant enough to think we were better than everybody else. And you kind of have to, you, there's no point being in a band if you don't feel you're better than everyone else. Yes. Um, although, although looking back, I, I'm a... Uh, just appalled at, at, at what my at my character. <laughs> I feel like a very very different person now. But um, yeah, so I think. But yeah, there. Were, I suppose it's like um, things like journalism, which I then went into. Now nowadays, anyone can be a journalist because you just you just have all of these platforms, and and you don't need to be attached to um to a publishing company. Um, I suppose it's like that for musicians. So in some sense, it's 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 much freer and it's very cheap and easy to make records you know it costs an absolute fortune for us to make a record in those days yes um so in some ways it's good but it and more much more democratic and you would hope that the real talent does still come through but in other ways it's harder i suppose because absolutely everybody is trying to do it and there's no way of kind of filtering and no yeah there's no way of people telling you well these are the bands you need to listen to or this is the the news you need to be believing Yes, this is true. We we needed those those kind of uh, yeah curators, I suppose. And, and John Peel was yeah, he he was he was the person who I trusted so much with just everything really. But then because a couple of years ago, um, Cherry Red Records, who've been bringing out these compilations, so many compilations. Yeah, they've just brought out another one, um, just like that. But yeah. you probably, but then yeah, they started with you know the C eighty six box set, didn't they? And then they went up to I think C A E ninety one. But you appear on the C eighty nine one, don't you, with your single "Sad yeah. Anne"? Yes, yes, that was a nice surprise. Um, you know, because we we'd done nothing. We we split up, I think, in ninety seven. Um, and I carried on in music for a bit in in a band in Brighton called Polak, um, but yeah, but then 
by about 99, I was out of the music industry entirely. But so when Cherry Red came along, um, yeah, that was just um, nice. Yeah, really nice. And in fact, there was talk then of, of, of Cherry Red um, re-releasing all of our stuff um, because none of it was kind of available on, on Spotify and everything. Um, then that, for various reasons, that didn't actually happen. So it's now thanks to Vinita at Rocket Girl Records that our um, first two albums are all now available. Um, Vinita was, was one of the people behind Cherie and Shay Records. Right. Um, so yeah, she stayed in the industry. Yeah, yeah. You're a plucky person. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> Sorry, that was an oatcake. Um, so, yeah, can you remember why or where you recorded or wrote Sad Anne? How did that come about? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I, I really can't remember where I would have written that. I, I think I was probably, I think I was probably a student when I wrote that. Um, and and I'm not sure I can remember what it was about, to be honest. Right. Um, probably an unrequited, probably some unrequited love for a fellow student. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's funny, that's the, the, the song that's kind of still sticking around a lot. Um, and the, and that's the song that C89 Terry Red wanted. Because it's, I, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of that as a song, I don't think. Um, that was kind of when we were still, we were still kind of jangly eighties um, kind of music to me. That it's, it, it doesn't quite feel like the band that we really were. Right. Um, so I don't, I'm not embarrassed of it. I suppose it's just I was quite young, and it feels it sounds slightly naive to me. But but people did really like it, and when we when we would play live, even later on before in our career, you know. Um, People really wanted to hear that song, so I suppose it must have something. Yeah, absolutely. So when you went to record your first album, I Baby, where was this recorded? So that was in the yeah, that was in the studio in Norfolk that I mentioned that we ended up sort of, um, kind of owning. Um, and yeah, we we uh, we had a the record company brought in a producer called Guy Bidmead who yes. who had um, yeah he'd worked with like bands like Motorhead um and I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure how that connection was made but I I was impressed because he'd worked with Elvis Costello and Elvis Costello was someone I'd always really really loved um as a songwriter and a singer and everything a massive fan of his um so I thought all oh, good um you know he's worked with Elvis Costello and he did have some good stories about working with Elvis Costello um but I think um, you know the sessions are okay. I think the the final kind of production it doesn't do the songs too many favors. Sorry, guy. Um, <laughs> and the, the second album production's much better. Yes. Um, but it was fun making it. Um, and I, yeah, I'm proud of the songs. And when you um, and once that was released, did you do a tour of of both the UK and Europe at this stage? Yeah. We did um we did quite a big tour of the, the UK. So um 
I like to bore my my daughter every time we go anywhere to a different city or town in in Britain. I like to bore her by saying we've we've that's the venue we played in. Yes, um, we went. We went. I feel like I know Britain musicians know Britain better than anyone because we've just been to every single town and city. Um, but yeah, tour. I love touring. So we 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 did a nice tour of Britain and in the in Europe we just did Holland and Belgium. Um, so not much in Europe really, although it was interesting in that um, subsequently in that the, uh, the band supporting us was a band from Oxford called Jennifer's who um, swiftly turned into Supergrass. So, um, so I like to tell people, because of course they became humongous, that um, Supergrass supported us, um, but they were really young. They were literally still at school I think when they were supporting us so they're very precocious um and you could tell you could tell on in those dates in Europe that they were um talented yes absolutely so this is the John Magee here aren't we we're talking about here and then sort of from that that period your record label goes bankrupt does this this does this mean you've lost your management as well um no we still had the same manager um but yes, the, the record company issues were, were was very annoying and we lost a lot of momentum because of that because we couldn't get anything else released. So we just had this big gap. And, um, you know, I don't think we fully appreciated at the time how you've got to keep the momentum going. So we were still busy, you know, we were still playing a lot and writing a lot. Um, so we were kind of busy, but um, not actually releasing anything. And... and yeah, we, I don't think we appreciated that you can't really do that. You've got to keep it going. So we lost, uh, yeah, we lost a lot, I think, during that time. Um, and then, yeah, this, this, the second album um, was a really good experience and really nice to record. It was lovely working with uh, Eve Altana, who joined us after Andy Murphy left. Uh, and Eve, as well as playing guitar with us, um, produced the second album. Um, so yeah, we met Eve. He, he was in a band called Wonky Alice in in Manchester, um, and they supported us uh, on a on some UK dates. So we got friendly with them, and especially with Eve. And he's an incredible guy, Eve. Yes. So this is definitely your favourite album, isn't it? Yes. Right. Did you at that stage? When did you sign to um, the next record label? Yeah, well, um, I mean, basically what happened was Cherie just and kind of collapsed but then reformed um, under the name Shay. So um, it was the same people, um, but it just a different name. That I, I, I was slightly lost track of, of exactly what happened. That Warner Brothers were involved somehow also. I think Warner Brothers were sort of buying, they didn't totally buy Shay, but I think they were licensing some Shea bands in America, um, but not all of them. Um, so they were, and this was Seymour Stein. Uh, so, um, you know, who's incredible um, music industry legend, of course, who died recently. Yes. So he would come over. It was really quite bizarre. He'd come over to London um, and be with Nick and Vanita, who were Sheree and then Shay, um, and bands like us, <laughs> we'd be hanging out with Seymour Stein 
um, as he was trying to, I think he really, he felt Nick and Vanita had really good nose for up and coming bands. Um, and so we we were just hoping, and I think it didn't materialize really, that Seymour Stein would think we were one of those bands. But we did we did meet him, and um, yeah, he was a really nice guy actually. Yes, absolutely. I would imagine that was that was incredible. I mean, this point, and this is where, you know, I think it was um, some journalist who oh, I can't remember his name coined the phrase Britpop, and you know, suddenly it was all kind of going very excited with the Union Jack. Did you feel that you were potentially going to be part of that next kind of wave, that that kind of huge kind of push towards suddenly appearing on top of the pops? I don't think so, because I think that, so so Britpop kind of was came out of the ashes of what Steve Sutherland at Melody Maker was trying to create in this new glam movement. So I think... New Glam failed as a kind of concept, um, and then and then Blur Blur suddenly changed direction and suddenly started doing incredible things. Suede were getting just better and better. I mean, I do think Suede were amazing from the very beginning, um, and so I think it was Suede and Blur driving that. Um, but by that point, we we were, you know, we didn't we didn't fit into that. We were not. And then, and then Oasis, I suppose, um, who also, you know, we liked Oasis, but we were never, I think we'd lost too much momentum by that point because of the the record company sort of shenanigans. Um, and then this blow about Melody Maker just basically stopping being our kind of patrons. Yes. Um, we lost too much. We'd, we'd kind of, you know, you'd, it's a ruthless business. Um, and I think our confidence was was just smashed to pieces by by Melody Maker just doing what they did. Um, and we didn't really show the resilience. Um, you know, you've got to be so tough to keep going, even if someone's kicking you in the face. And we didn't keep going. We just kind of felt sorry for ourselves and started to worry too much. And we didn't really fight back. Yes. So was that the, when you did the album, V-Neck, was that the last time you were in the studio? Um, I think we, I think we went back in, um, we did a single after that, I think it was after that, called We Are Fiasco, or oh, no, maybe that was before that. Yeah, no, I really don't know. I think, you might be right, V-Neck may be, may be the last kind of proper time we recorded. Um, there was another I mean, after one. The is, it, is it Carrion and Making Money? Was that a single that you recorded later, or was that on? Was that part that of the was same? All part, no, that was all part of the same the V neck sessions. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that that was it. So when did you get that feeling that the band was was no more? To quote Jim Morrison, it was the end coming inside. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I think I mean it was kind of gradual. Um. Uh, Eve, so Eve had become part of the band and was was very, you know, um, energetic and and good for us. Uh, but he was working with uh, loads of other bands too. He's the sort of person who who just has to be working on a million projects at once. Um, and he was working with Mark Burgess from the Chameleons a lot, um, especially touring. So he would tour with Mark Burgess around. Uh, Europe all the time and America so so Eve 
was never a hundred percent committed to the Bardos, and and so he was off a lot of the time. So that was an issue. Um, and then in the end, we did replace um, Eve temporarily, just for one or two dates and some TV stuff. Um, so Eve had gone, and then the the I think the Death Knell was probably the publishing company. Um, uh, ended the contract. So the publishing money was keeping us afloat financially. Um, and so if you've, uh, you know, if you've got no money coming in, it's, it's hard. And so people just need to have money. Uh, so yeah, publishing company Momentum um, pulled out. Um, although funnily enough, um, Momentum, who were bought out by Universal, it seems, um, still when I get sort of royalties, I notice that the money still half of it still goes to um to Universal Publishing. So right. they, they still pulled out in terms of giving us the the big chunky advances that keep us going. Um, but they yeah, you're assigned to those kind of things forever. Right, that's always so heartbreaking. So can you remember the moment that um, you sat there and said, "This is it. We're gonna we're gonna draw a line under the Baldos." Um. I do remember. I do remember a, a, a meeting we had in a in a pub. I think it was the it was that pub near the bridge, um, near the Nelson Hotel, the other side of the Nelson Hotel in Norwich. I don't know why we were in that pub. We would never never normally go in that pub. Uh, for some reason, we were in there and we were looking at the letter from the publishing company. So in those days, if it was actual physical letters that would arrive in the post, of course. Uh, so yeah, I do have a memory of that. And thinking, oh right, so that really that's it then. Um, but then, yeah, and it was it was very sad because we'd been through a lot, and we were proud of what we'd done. And I think we, I think a lot of, you know, we a lot of people enjoyed seeing us play and hearing our records. So that was worrying. But I did very soon after that join Polak. So, so that was kind of another bit of optimism, and especially because so Polak was run by Pete uh, Fiankowski, who is Christoph's brother, and Christoph was our guitarist. Um, and so Christoph had joined Polak before me, and then they were looking for a keyboard player, and and as we mentioned, I could play the piano, and that was my kind of first instrument, really. So I thought. Well, that could be interesting to be, you know, I wouldn't have the pressure of the, being the front man, um, writing all the songs. I just rock up and play the keyboards um, at a load of gigs and, and in the studio. So that seemed interesting. Um, but in particular, because, as I mentioned, Martin um, was the manager. So, so this was a serious, serious manager they had. Um, and she got a, them a deal with, one little Indian. Um, so I, yeah, so I joined Polak. So, so I still felt kind of optimistic. I was still in the music industry. And then Polak was a real blast. It was completely, completely different kind of atmosphere as a band to the Bardos. Like, could, couldn't have been more different. Right. Did you ever get sort of any, um, did Alan McGee ever try and sign the Bardos or? Was he ever sort of um, interested? Because he was kind of very, yeah, I mean, he'd been there in the sort of music scene since the early 80s, but then definitely in the 90s was that moment where things were really happening for him. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we, I don't, we didn't, definitely didn't get an offer from Creation. I think they probably came to see us. 
Um, they signed Adorable, which was Pete's band, um, Pete Piankowski, his band in in um, in Coventry, um, and that was great for them. And we toured we toured supporting Adorable, um, which is a brilliant tour. Um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, across the UK. And you could, it was really, yeah, the scene, the scene around creation was really exciting. But no, we didn't, we didn't ever get a, an offer from them. Yes. Um, no. So how long were you in Polak for? Um, I think it, I think it must have just been a couple of years or something like that. At the most, um, it, it was like it started off really, really great, and it was huge fun the, the, like the, the musicians uh, were really good musicians but also just hilarious people so everything was just kind of so enjoyable and light-hearted whereas the, the bardos was was much much darker full of full of tension um especially between me and andy sorry andy um and a, a much more serious and a kind of real deep kind of artistic endeavor Polak was just 100% fun um so that was really refreshing um and it started off great in terms of the interest and the reviews and the gigs and the record deals and stuff but then um it got to a point I think I suppose I was I was hitting 30 years old and I was starting to think you know that it wasn't really making any money and I thought God, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do something more sensible than this and start start another career. So I, that's when I I left Polak, and then um, yeah, retrained to be a journalist. Right. So did you leave before the albums came out, Swan Swan Songs and Rubber Necking? I think I was still in when the first one came out, and then I think I'd left before the second one. But I think I may have played on the second one. It's, it's all a bit of a blur. Yes, my goodness me, that's uh, well, uh, a little bit of an extension to the musical moment there, which kind of took you into the new millennium, which was exciting. But then the the Bardos reform again, don't they? In two thousand and is it two thousand and nine January to mark the twentieth anniversary of the Wild Club? Yes, yes, we did. Yes, that was that was nice. Yeah. So um, Andy um, flew over. Andy was living in Portugal, or still still is living in Portugal. So he flew over. Um, and we rehearsed, and Neil, the drummer who lives in Edinburgh, came down, um, and then me, Christoph, and Steve are all still based in in Norfolk. Um, so it was nice just to get back together. Very strange, really, after all that time to be playing those songs. Um, but and then the gig, yeah, it was it was nice. Yeah, it was a good feeling. Yeah. Yes, my goodness me. And did it feel, was there a slight healing process that went on or just a feeling of um, appreciating what you'd done in the band during those kind of heady but slightly tense times? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose we'd all, we'd all grown up a bit, you know, by that point. Um, so it was, yeah, the, I think that it, the, the, Kind of tension was kind of mainly forgotten, um, but it's it's an intense, a very intense experience being in a in a band um, when you when that's all you do when your when your whole life is the band. 
because it, I suppose it is like a family and you're just together all the time. Um, and, and and not just that, you're together, but under pressure all the time. Um, you know, you, you, you're just constantly trying to impress people. So whether that's record companies or agents or promoters or the fans um, or each other uh, or your manager. And, and it's... And when you have a bit of success early on at the beginning, which we did, then you've got to constantly just try to come up with something that replicates that or is better than that. Um, and as because I was the songwriter, um, I think I did have extra pressure um, because, you know, you finish an album and then, OK, so Simon, can you now write another 30 songs so we can check them out and decide which ones to record? That's a massive pressure. So, so I don't, it's not surprising that you end up wanting to kill each other, to be honest. And you're, and you're sharing, you're sleeping on floors a lot, and you're sharing crappy hotel rooms, and um, and you're drinking way too much, and you're not eating anything apart from pasties from petrol stations. So it's it's just a terrible lifestyle. And I mean, I was I, I was really not cut out for for that in a lot in lots of ways. I think you know I was. I was a, a weird mixture of extremely arrogant, but also extremely lacking in confidence. Um, and so alcohol became a big part of, of of everything, just for the, I suppose, for the confidence. Yes. So I think, to be honest, if I'd, if I'd succeeded and become a really successful, famous person, I don't think I'd even uh, have survived it, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite... Uh... A unique kind of job spec, isn't it? Really, you know, to try and cope with all of it. You know, the on one level, the the sort of being grounded, but then being arrogant and confident, and I don't know. It, it must 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 drive most people completely nuts. So you've got yeah. your two albums coming out. Yes. Are they going to be? Is that CD and vinyl and digital download, or you know, what's the format's going to be? It's just digital. Yeah. So I, so. Um... We we never for some reason they were, had never become digital downloadable um, songs that were available on all of the platforms like Spotify, um, which was a shame. Um, so yeah, so that's all. That's that's ha- they've been released via Bandcamp, um, uh, with Rocket Girl Records being the kind of driver behind it all, um, which has been really great. Yes. Benitez been brilliant. So yeah, all all it is is that you can now download them um, digitally. Yeah. And is there any plans of doing your because your John Peel session? I just noticed that was recorded with the famous Mike Robinson on the sixth August, no, not August, June nineteen ninety two. There was four tracks. Are there any plans to try and get that released as well? Um, well, not that I'm aware of, but I, I um, good question. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice. I mean, it was, yeah, we were quite pleased with how they came out. It was really, a, a really amazing experience to do that. It made a veil. Um, yeah, it, it quite, yeah, quite crazy, actually. You have to do it so fast, um, but they, they really know what they're doing. But yeah, no, no plans that I'm aware of, but who knows? I mean, if things go well with the, with the release, then maybe maybe Venita will um will, will want to will. do something. Well, there's there's interesting. There's a couple of little kind of record labels that have sprung up. There was Fire Station in um 
Germany, but I think he's decided to call it a day. And there's Cloudbury in New York, and then there's Optic Nerve Records in Preston, and then there's another person called the Precious Recordings of London, who's putting out John Peel, Janice Long sessions from the late 80s and early 90s. So it'll be interesting to see if you come on his radar at all, because he's been doing a very good job with all these kind of releases, but it is a yeah. one-man band. But it would be good. And and do you feel as well that, you know, especially with lockdown, um, you know, archive and your work has been kind of important? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean... I, it was it was annoying to me that none of it was available um, on Spotify. Um, I mean, there's also there's a third album that was a that was a weird kind of it was like a compilation that was only put out in Canada. Um, and to be honest, I don't think I've even got a copy of it anymore. I probably lent it to somebody and never got it back. So um, and that was it was called Sad Anne, um, but it had about twenty odd tracks. Um, including a load of acoustic songs that it would just be me on an acoustic guitar or maybe a piano um, and with maybe with Christoph playing and singing. Um, and some of, and so there's quite a few songs on that that have never been released anywhere else. So I don't know if that'll end up being released somehow, but that's got some, for the kind of hardcore fans, that's got some really interesting stuff on it. Um Yes. But yeah, that was only in Canada. I'm not, not sure if it's America too. We played in America a few times, and um, and Americans then anyway really loved a British bands, um, and so so that's this is why this label, um, uh, what were they called? There's Bliss um, Bliss Out Enterprise. Yes, Bliss Out Records. Yeah, so they they put this thing out in North America. Wow, that's interesting. Who owns that? Do you have the master copies of all your work? The master well, tapes. Well, it's another good question because um, they they're all in our manager's house. Um, so John, um, who managed us for a long time, um, and sort of sort of still is helping. You know, he he's been helping a lot with um, this release. Um, occasionally, once every like ten years or so, John will contact us saying. Can someone come and collect all, all of these tapes? Because um, it's taking up too much room in his house. So John, yeah, they they all exist. All of these massive tapes um, gathering dust. So yes, but no one really wants to. No one really feels they have the space in their in their houses to. to have no, all this stuff. taking the the archives of the band. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, we probably should. Yeah. Most people would be like, my God, because a lot of bands are sort of don't know where there are, you know, where the, the master tapes are anymore because, they, you know, the record label got bought by somebody and then that got bought by somebody and they could be anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of bands. Yeah, are going, well, we were, we were lucky in that our, at a certain point, um, our manager, John, did uh, buy a share in the record company. So he um, so that's probably why he's got these tapes, because he ended up kind of being part of the record company. So, so we were quite lucky in that sense. But I think, I think the most interesting thing would be if we can get that first album remixed. And at one point, I think maybe Eve or someone was saying they wanted to have a go at remixing the first album um, because the production's just not good. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that would be a lovely thing if some someone wanted to remix that. Yes, nice. So, does that mean you've got the ownership of your music? Does does you know the 
the publishing and everything is that is that what um, you know no i think no i well i think it's jointly owned probably by us and by universal music yeah right. so yeah it's always a tricky one. And if you could have whispered something to your like 16 or 18 year old self starting out in that interesting world that is the music business, I suppose, what would you say anything in particular to them? You know, even if they ignored your worldly <laughs> advice. Um, gosh. Uh, well, I think I think I would probably um, advise the 16 year old me to um be more to fight more and to be more resilient so there was that i think as as i have talked about that that point that critical point when melody maker just just did decided to um to ditch us basically having built us up they just decided that we weren't what they wanted um at that point so it uh, we just kind of we didn't give up, but we definitely it was a it was the the fatal blow really was that. Mm. Um whereas um if we'd been tougher um and more ruthless, we'd have seen that well that's just one person, it's just one magazine, who cares? Prove them wrong, you know. So I think it was the our attitude was insufficiently sort of um pugnacious you know and then you see bands like um oasis and just you know street fighters we you know we weren't we weren't sort of street fighters you know we were we were sensitive poets <laughs> <laughs> yes i know it's a tricky one isn't it too um i'm sure you've read morrissey's kind of autobiography where he he's He's hurt by everything that's ever happened in his life. And, um, you know, and he's been wronged by everybody. But it is quite, yeah. you know, you think, gosh, it, everything does kind of get right through to him, doesn't it? And sort of hurts. But um, yeah, 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 I thought it was a really good book. And then Johnny Marr's book a bit later was also really interesting. And seeing the, the two, I mean, Johnny Marr's clearly he's such a different character. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't, we, we weren't, um, you know, we weren't like Morrissey in terms of um, feeling hard done by. We just, we just, I don't know. We just didn't, we just didn't fight enough. Um, yeah, we, it's just. I think our characters were just, you know, not not that suited to to sustaining fight to to surviving the blows and to um, to really really fighting. We were, you know not not that kind of person yes and did you and do you still or occasionally pick up a guitar or play keyboards and think oh yes i might just write a song if i if i've got the inspiration and a couple of hours spare um not not really um i mean i still play a little bit yeah at home <clears throat> um i haven't written a song well I, i've occasionally i'll have a go at writing some songs but not, not seriously, so because I have no reason to really. So you need a, you know, you need the reason. Um, so if someone said, you know, write me ten songs because I'm going to give them to this band or I, I want to record you, or um, you have to have those that incentive and the people around you saying you're brilliant. I want you to do this or come and do a gig. Um, so I would, you know, if I was asked, I would do it. 
Yes. Um, and I quite like the idea um, of playing again because it, you know, it, it, I, I do very little that's creative anymore, and it's that sucks, you know, because I, what I am a, you know, that's what I am at heart is a creative person. So yeah. Yes, I know. I think every so many of those, you know, bands I've um, interviewed have. I've had a sort of quite similar experience where they've, you know, thought, right, I've got to get a job. Teacher training's a popular one. And, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then and then it's that kind of, actually, I'm just going to start playing the guitar again and just, you know, having a bit of fun. It's amazing how many bands have started sort of, not the bands, but, you know, members who have just kind of got together and with either new people or somebody, one person from the original band and thought, well, we won't try and reproduce it, but we'll just try and, you know, just have a nice time and um, record a few new songs and call ourselves something quite different, really. So Yeah, no, I, d- I definitely wouldn't rule it out. No, I mean, everyone's so busy all the time, um, you know, having kids and, you know, careers. Um, but I do miss it. I definitely miss it. It was in, in I feel very privileged to have had that career. Um, and, I've, you know, I think about it a lot. Um, yes and did you and I was going to say did you enjoy the the Velvet Underground um film that came out a few years ago on I think it was did on the Disney Channel wasn't it some documentary yeah. that was made was that quite inspirational to you when you watched it yeah yeah it was good yeah I mean I, I yeah I, I really was a massive massive fan um so interested um and also in you know we we had our influences were were definitely not just music um we were all reading the same sort of books especially me and Christoph um and going to the same kind of um art exhibitions and theatre and um when when I was about sort of 15 16 17 I would go and spend my summers in London because my dad lived in London um and I would just consume um art exhibitions and films and theatre um and that was really important I think and 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 so I, I mean not wishing to sound too pretentious but a lot of the the those influences in our songs were not from music they were from um writers and artists um so yeah that that definitely I think that that's what made us um an interesting band yes. of lyrics at least so did you how many times did you watch betty blue <laughs> i did i do remember that coming out and that yeah that was a good film yes we <laughs> all love betty blue well there was you know i'm a complete cliche of the 80s you know all those art house cinema films that yeah. you would watch even if you didn't particularly like them you'd sort of you know a razor head is definitely the one that was a pain but you know you had to take yeah. it off didn't you so um but you know, oh yeah, was... David. Lynch, yeah, we love David Lynch films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good to laugh at yourself. And did and did you know? Like, I mean, with the sixties and seventies, you know, obviously Jack Kerouac was the kind of the person that everyone loved, and Allen Ginsberg. What what writers were you particularly influenced by? Um, well, yes, the, the beat definitely the beat poets and the beat writers. Um, Burroughs. Um, and Kerouac, uh, but also people like Charles Bukowski, um, yeah, lots of American writers, Raymond Carver, um, but then British writers like J.G. Ballard, um, 
so you know some of my some of those songs are, are, are real just sort of musical versions of jg ballard song but right um and then poets like e, i really like ee e. cummings and playing around with um words and language um uh yeah and then artists like um gilbert and george um in the 80s and 90s and then warhol obviously um bridget riley um yeah lots lots of different not just the 60s but yes 60s was an incredible time obviously yes um yeah yes but, um, christoph christoph in the band was a even during the whole band he had a he was a, a teacher an art teacher at the norwich art school um in surrealism so so um and that was a massive influence on me and on the music and on the visuals and stuff and so we would do things like um you know automatic writing and writing down your dreams and all of these kind of surrealist concepts would feed into the band um so and you know some of the songs were literally just a description of a dream that i'd had or some automatic writing that i tried to do um we we used to um i've only just discovered this um recently but I'd, I'd totally forgotten, but we used to do a little newsletter that we would type up and print out and send out to fans um, with kind of updates about what we were doing, tours and stuff. But it would we'd also include descriptions of some of our dreams. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's terribly embarrassing, really. But um, <laughs> we were we were full on, you know, we were full on immer immersed in um, in that kind of ultra. Um, intense uh, introspective kind of creative pursuit we, we did we did see it wider than just on in the band um yeah did you did you try the you know the you know i know we saw bowie doing it in the film cracked actor i think but you know william burroughs did you used to do any cut-ups with your lines or lyrics to try and um see what would come out of them yeah i did try that yeah i don't know if it ever really worked uh, I can't. I, I, I may. It may have ended up in some songs. Definitely tried it. Yeah, I cut it. Yeah, uh, having read about Bowie doing it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. I, well, you know, I, I, I must admit, listening to the two albums, I, I do. I really like. The, yeah, I mean, you know, I know you. You're more, you know, fond of your second album, but I, I really like the vibe of the first album a lot. You know, so. Oh yeah, I like the. I really like the songs. Yeah, it was just the. The production just kind of created a bit of an obstacle to to be able to listen to them, but the, yeah, the, I I I agree. I mean, it's a very different set of songs and different sort of styles. Um, but that yeah, the first album, um, yeah, really, um, you know, I put everything into those songs. Yes, well, sure. it cap it captures a spirit and a. It fit a vibe, doesn't it, really? So, um, yeah, it's good. It's yeah. great that, you know, so many people are sort of putting their work out and, you know, in a way, archiving it. But Because otherwise, the story of the 80s or the story of the 90s has such a kind of a wooden narrative told by one or two people. And then there's all these other layers of those decades and other art, artistic movements and scenes. And you think, oh, that, that's much more my 80s and 90s rather than the... The narrative that we sometimes get fed and um indie pop and john peel and going to see the bundu boys was 
my 80s really but um yes flailing yeah. around being all very sensitive and listening to smiths you know and watching betty blue yeah. films it was all that you know it's yeah. got to be done well nostalgia is nostalgia is very a very strong kind of emotion isn't it and um i'm sure you know we in our career we must have played to so many thousands of people um all over the place and and you know those were really good gigs you know they People, you know, well, not all of them. Some of them were terrible, but generally, <laughs> generally, they were great, and people really loved it. And so, you know, a, a percentage of those people will presumably uh, be pleased that they can kind of relive relive their youth, yes, um, as well as we can. <laughs> And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive, massive thank you to Simon Dunford. Forgive me the time for that, but that's the Bardos. And as I probably mentioned at the beginning, they have now got a Facebook page and Instagram. Yes, indeed, they are with the modern times. So do check them out. And uh, yeah, they are also going to be available musically on uh, Bandcamp and various streaming services. I will give you those links in the uh, notes below. But um, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show and you will find me. And also all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Do check them out. There's over 900 and growing steadily. Anyway, stay safe. 